Good afternoon, this is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Regular listeners will know that I've been away for a couple of weeks. I wish I could say that I've been somewhere interesting, Aztec ruins or the Magic Mountain, or even a chalet on the Shingle Beach at Pointy Town. But alas, I've been a pallid, sickly wretch, suffering from risings in the spleen and the ague and black bile and the bloody flux and vapours in the cranial integuments. At times like these, I tend to rely on the regular infusion of Baxter's terrible fluid or Dr Gillespie's vital nerve powders. The latter, sprinkled onto a plum or a conference pear, can work wonders on even the puniest constitution. And indeed, here I am, back behind the microphone on a Wednesday afternoon, bringing the show to you live from the gleaming skyscraper which houses the Resonance FM studio. Yes, I struggled my way through the weird pneumatic doors. I panted for breath as I staggered onto the moving walkway. There was a ringing in my ears as I slumped on the floor of the turbo elevator which shot me to the top of the building in just four seconds and I needed a bowl of energising vitamin soup before I could speak. But here I am, ready to provide you with half an hour of instructive prose to inspire your moral sentiments. Excuse me a moment while I mop my still-fevered brow. There. Now... One consequence of lying abed groaning and whimpering in the throes of neurasthenic horrors is a disinclination to write. Some might choose to call this writer's block, or even idleness, but they know not whereof they speak. At least one acquaintance made this accusation in the past fortnight. As I tossed and turned in an agony of twitching fits, I became aware of a message on my metal tapping machine. Weakly, I reached for it, nearly falling from my rumpled pallet as I did so. And when I read the message, I was convulsed anew, as if a hundred demons with a hundred forks were pricking me a hundred times. For crying out loud, Key, I read through my tears, stop being such a milk-toast whinger. There's nothing wrong with you that a brisk walk around the duck pond in a hailstorm won't fix. Put on your boots and seize the day. I tossed my metal tapping machine onto the floor among the piles of rags and sobbed. Some hours later, when I'd stopped sobbing, I did indeed clamber from my sick bed, put on my boots, and I launched myself towards the duck pond. I got as far as the garden gate before collapsing in a mewling heap. I shuddered and shook, twitching and shattered, and hideous visions swam in my brain. I knew they were visions, because there are no giant golden poisonous toads in this neck of the woods. But still, even though I sensed they were the product of my fuming brain, they were frightening enough, particularly the one called Graham, which had more eyes than you normally see on a toad, even a giant golden poisonous one, and each eye was quivering on the end of a stalk, which again is untoad-like, as far as I know, not that I've ever made a study of the world's toads, though it's on my list of things to do. Anyway, there I was, cutting the opposite of a dash, when the postie bashed his way through the garden gate, clonking me on the head. The hallucinatory toads vanished, and I sat up on the gravel, rubbing the lump that was already swelling where I had been clonked. 
Oh, sorry I clonked you on the head, said the postie. Here, I have a letter for you. <clears throat> Even in the most trying of circumstances, I try to be polite. So, as I took the envelope from the postie, I thanked him. He recoiled from me as if I had screeched some blasphemous execration. As indeed I had, for the clonk on my head had dislodged some of the nerve wirings in my brain, and for the next three days, whenever I spoke, whatever I tried to say, I spewed forth a tirade of foulness. Luckily a cure was effected before I had to do this show, otherwise resonance would be shut down by the authorities for broadcasting disgusting language in the middle of a Wednesday afternoon, when innocent and sensitive ears would be appalled and rightly so. I was able to treat the dislodged brain wiring by myself, for though I have neglected to learn about the toads of the world, I do know a thing or two about the magnificent complexity of the human brain. I had a good teacher. Years ago, I attended a two-day course at the Blotzman Institute, where I learned, among other things, that if you immerse your head in a bucket of warm soapy water and do the Culpepper manoeuvres until at the point of drowning, most of your brain problems will be solved. It certainly works for me. Now, where was I? I took the letter from the postie and crawled back into the house, somehow managing to hoist myself into a chair at the kitchen table. I did not like the look of the handwriting on the envelope. It spoke to me of theft, spasms and cruelty. It spoke of moral turpitude. It spoke of rubber truncheons and contempt. You might ask how I could read so much into the few scribbled lines of my name and address, but I'm not going to tell you. Instead, I'm going to sulk while we have a short interval. That's better. I'll get back to how I overcame what might have been writer's block, or might have been something far more lethal, something almost too awful to contemplate, in a moment. But I want to mention that in between recovering from my neurasthenic terrors and coming in to do today's show, I went to see the film Snakes on a Plane. Most of the critics have, with their customary laziness, made a big deal of Samuel L. Jackson's line, I'm sick and tired of these beeping snakes on this beeping plane. But for me, there was a much better moment in the screenplay. One of the stewardesses enters the cockpit, where the co-pilot is trying to control the plane. The captain's already been bitten by a poisonous snake. She says, What's with the oxygen mask deploying? Now... Put yourself in the scene. You are that stewardess. You're wondering why all the oxygen masks have been released for no apparent purpose. So you go to the cockpit to find out. Come on now, think yourself into the situation. What do you say? What words come out of your mouth? What's with the oxygen masks, you might say. Or at a push, what's with the oxygen mask deployment? But what's with the oxygen mask deploying? I think not. A great moment in a foolish but amusing film. While we're on the subject of cinema, 
I've recently become obsessed with the man who does the voiceovers for all Hollywood comedies and romances. You know the one. Failure to launch. It's the movie everyone's talking about. Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. My super ex-girlfriend. You'll laugh until you cry. Sandra Bullock is amazing. You know the voice. I was thinking that he ought to be used for a wider range of films. Christoph Kieslowski's masterpiece, a short film about killing. Everyone's talking about Peter Greenaway's new movie, The Tulse Looper's Suitcases. You'll just love Intolerance by veteran D.W. Griffith. Hmm, time for another break. So, anyway, I sat at my table glaring at this envelope with its repellent handwriting. I plucked a plum from my plum bowl, sprinkled it with Dr Gillespie's vital nerve powders, took a bite and glared at the envelope some more. I turned it over to see if there was a return address, and there was, but it was badly smudged and illegible. I cursed the postie. I flapped my arms as if I were a bird, a big legendary bird, like a rock. I pulled a piece of straw out of my hair. I pondered the implications of that anonymous 18th century suicide note, which read, in its entirety, all this buttoning and unbuttoning. I couldn't remember if there was an exclamation mark appended to it, so I tottered to my feet and headed for the bookshelves, whereon nestled a dictionary of quotations. I never made it across the room, because as I took a few unsteady steps, I was confronted by a phantom. It may have been a ghoul, but I think it was a phantom. It was grey and ethereal and shimmering and damp and cold and mournful, and it was clutching in its slender, bloodless hand the key to a hotel room. Through some kind of ghostly thought transference, it told me that the hotel it belonged to was far away, in Winnipeg, and that I must go there immediately. I tried a bit of thought transference myself to explain that my passport had expired and that I was too sick to go to Winnipeg in any case, but I made a botch of it and transferred my thoughts not to the phantom but to a carpet beetle near the skirting board, which was so traumatised by being suddenly zapped with alien thought processes that it had a heart attack and perished, flipping onto its back and wiggling its many, many little legs hopelessly in the air. Can carpet beetles have heart attacks? Or did I misread the signs? Who knows, apart from entomologists. What I do know is that the carpet beetle was dead and the phantom was still looming there, reproachful and anguished. It was, by the way, a Dutch phantom, a Rotterdam phantom, one of the phantoms of Rotterdam. What was it doing in my house? Why was it imploring me to go to a hotel in Winnipeg? What awaited me in the hotel room? 
I tried to remove a sliver of plum peel that was caught in my teeth without success. The Rotterdam phantom shifted suddenly, spine-tinglingly. Now it was behind me. I span around. The phantom was dissolving slowly, but it had left the Winnipeg hotel key on the mantelpiece. I opened a window. From my neighbour's house I could hear the strains of 20 great TV themes by the Dennis Drivel Accordion and Panpipe Orchestra. I realised it was the limited edition version, including the theme from It Shouldn't Happen to a Vet. My head cleared. Everything seemed to fall into place. I had been sick, but now I was well. I flapped my arms again, like wings, but not like the wings of a legendary bird like a rock. I flapped my arms as if they were angels' wings, and I was being born to heaven, and I took the dead carpet beetle with me, for why should insects not share in the rapture of paradise? Here's a different story. The pigs needed feeding, so Constance took a big crate full of apples and trudged out in the morning drizzle. The apples were pippins and mostly rotten, but she knew that the pigs would guzzle them down. Over by the aircraft hangar, a flop-eared bunny rabbit was hopping about among a pile of abandoned pots and pans. Constance worried about rust, but not today. She tipped the apples into the pigsty, put the empty crate onto a pile of other empty crates and headed off towards the orchard as dawn was breaking. Constance had an assignation in the orchard. The following day, before her assignation, Constance not only fed the pigs with a crate full of overripe plums, but she gathered up all the pots and pans strewn around the door of the aircraft hangar and de-rusted them with a de-rusting solution of her own devising. The flop-eared bunny rabbit was nowhere to be seen, but she saw an arctic hare on the horizon. Then she trotted off excitedly to the orchard. On the Thursday, she was late getting to the orchard for her assignation because one of the pigs had contracted a lethal pig disease and she ran across the muddy fields to call the local veterinarist. I'm going to start that sentence again. On the Thursday, she was late getting to the orchard for her assignation because one of the pigs had contracted a lethal pig disease and she ran across the muddy fields to call the local veterinary surgeon, a mutton-chopped old fool with watery eyes. He was still abed, and Constance knocked and knocked on his door to rouse him. When he eventually came down in his dressing gown, not quite awake, and unlatched his door, the following dialogue took place. Constance. Vet, vet, I have a sick pig! veterinary surgeon. Let me get dressed and put all the necessaries in my bag and I will come with you. Constance. Hurry, hurry, vet, the pig may die. 
veterinary surgeon. I will do my utmost to save your pig. Because Constance had run across the fields to call the veterinary surgeon, she was late for her assignation in the orchard. When she got there, at last, she found a note fastened to a withered old Pugton tree. She read only half of it before hot tears welled up and she fled from the orchard, sobbing and bereft. Back at the pigsty, the watery-eyed veterinary surgeon was packing up his bag. Constance blundered through the gate, fraught and weeping and wild-eyed. Veterinary surgeon. I have cured your pig, Miss Constance. All will be well. Here's something I've read before, but I'm going to read it again because it's one of the... Well, for some reason, um, a number of listeners are very fond of this piece. The annual picnic for detectives event has become one of the key dates in the Hooting Yard calendar, which is somewhat surprising given its inglorious beginnings. The very first picnic for detectives was hardly a picnic at all, and the official historian of the event estimates that only a handful of those taking part were bona fide detectives. All we know for certain is that a small group of people, no more than four or five, pitched up in a field with a couple of hampers and spent an afternoon there. Meteorological records show the day was one of arctic squalls, but the field was in a temperate zone inland. In fact, it was just across the road from Pang Hill Orphanage. This anomaly has fascinated weather-fixated picnic-for-detectives buffs who are legion. So, not only do we have just a few people with a couple of hampers, we do not even know what was in those hampers. If you're familiar with ordinary picnics, you would expect to open up a hamper to find sandwiches, savoury flans, some fruit, crackers, cheese-related foodstuffs, cake and bottles of refreshing barley water. Hard-boiled eggs would be likely too, unless the film director Alfred Hitchcock was one of the picnickers, for as we know from the many biographies, he was terrified of eggs. Hitchcock was not present at the picnic across the road from the Pang Hill Orphanage that is counted now as the first picnic for detectives, but unfortunately we do not know the names of those who were. In fact, the whole thing is shrouded in mystery. All we can say for certain is that the following year, in the very same field, there was a second picnic, and this one was attended only by detectives, either by chance or design. This second picnic was blessed with what the records call humid balminous and scattered dappling sunlight. Examination of surviving crumbs from the site indicates that all sorts of pies were eaten, with or without cutlery. I, for one, hope they did use cutlery, or at least forks, wrote Sidney Cack. 
for there is something disconcerting and undignified in the mental image of a team of tip-top detectives sprawled in a field, shoveling pie into their mouths with their fingers. It seems those resounding words, picnic for detectives, were first used a year later. The third picnic is the one that became legendary. Over 40 detectives gathered in the field, and their hampers were each emblazoned with a badge, a heraldic device, a coat of arms, an emblem, each one caked in mud as a safeguard. The picnic menu was written down for the first time, and to this day it is recited at the crack of every dawn by the urchins in the Pang Hill Orphanage. It was at this third picnic for detectives that a pack of beagles was employed to frighten off swooping crows, magpies, gulls and other scavenging creatures with beaks and wings. Nowadays, the beagles in the pack are bred specially in the detectives' beagle breeding compound, their psychological state carefully monitored while they're still puppies. One innovation at the third picnic for detectives which did not survive was musical accompaniment. The experimental percussionist Zoltan Taplo was invited along, despite having no background in police work. He was stationed in a corner of the field and asked to play suitable picnic music. His energetic thumping upon reconditioned metal drums and shamanic gongs was drowned out that day by howling winds and the steady convoy of cement mixer trucks growling along the road. There is one body of opinion which suggests that Taplow was merely a figment of the overheated imagination of one of the detectives, a tall, stooping forensics specialist who'd spent too much of his career aboard ships. The absence of Taplow from nearly all A to Z directories of experimental percussionists tend to support this view. The music, real or imagined, was inaudible. But the picnic itself was a triumph. It is the subject of two novels, a stage play, a long-running television serial, an opera and no less than three films, the finest of which is probably Picnic for Detectives 3, the title of which was changed to Hot Picnic for Detectives Impact by the distributors, concerned that cinema-goers would be confused into assuming they'd missed two earlier features. Detective Captain Shuddery, who was given a sabbatical from the force to produce and direct the film, disowned it, but he need not have done, for it's a towering work. It may be that his critical faculties deserted him when, immediately after completing the film, he was badly injured when attacked by a swan. It is certainly true that his nerves never recovered, and he spent what ought to have been the prime of his career chewing toffee in the hothouse of a nursing home, surrounded by gigantic and abominable plants. By the time Shuddery's film came out, the third picnic for detectives was lost in the past, a sepia-tinged memory of tweed suits, massive walrus moustaches, essence of violets, organdy ruffles, reticules and Gladstone bags. From the fourth year onwards, with the introduction of lobsters on the menu, picnic for detectives took on its startling calendrical significance. Who today can imagine a year in Hooting Yard without it? 
Remarkably little has changed over the years. Still, there is the ceremonial march past of retired detectives on Picnic for Detectives Eve, where the wheelchairs of the infirm agents are pushed along by teams of tots from Panghill Orphanage. Still, the lobster pots are made of beaten bronze in a factory far away. Still, the field is laced with buttercups and dandelions and spurge allowed to spread. Still, anxious eyes are cast up to the skies in the morning, the weather discussed in almost insane detail by all who linger on the Pang Hill pathways. Still, the hampers bear badges which glisten under their caking of mud. And still, there are detectives. And still, there is a picnic for them, in Hooting Yard, but once a year, come hell or high water, come rain or shine. I don't know if you've noticed um, the very interesting little segues from one piece to another this week. Plums, plums have turned up more than once, as have bags. And it's bags that we're going to move to here. Um, the Old Testament book of Haggai. It's a brief text, it's a favourite of mine. It mentions pottage, of course, which is always a good thing. But it also includes the phrase, he that earneth wages, sorry, he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. That's Haggai um, chapter 1 verse 6. He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. I've always felt a pang of sympathy for that man, whoever he may have been. He's the only person in the Bible who carries a bag with holes, a bag so unlike the ones mentioned in Luke 12.33. Bags which wax not old, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. Clearly the Haggai man has allowed moths to corrupt his bag, and that's why it has holes in it. I can't help wondering if he's a little simple, this man, to be putting his wages into a moth-eaten bag. He's a prototype of the holy innocent, or the holy fool, perhaps, that mythic figure which had such resonance in Tsarist Russia, among other times and places. Rasputin certainly exploited the idea for all it was worth, and although there's no reliable account of him roaming the corridors of the Winter Palace carrying a bag with holes, I like to think he did. At the end, of course, his assassins had such trouble doing him to death that they shot him at least three times. So it's possible that any bag he had with him at the time would have had a hole or holes caused by gunfire, even if it had escaped corruption by moths. To my knowledge, no one has yet pursued a close study of moth infestations in the Tsarist palaces. But if someone with the requisite scholarly background were to do so, we may learn something of importance. I'm not sure whether the moths lying in wait to feed on Rasputin's bag would have been alder moths or antler, 
autumnal, bee, black mountain, black V, black veined, broom, cabbage, crimson speckled, Cynthia, December, dew, drinker, ear early, emperor, fisher's estuarine, fox, garden pebble, ghost, goat, great peacock, gypsy, heart, hornet, leopard, lobster, march, meal, mouse, muslin, netted mountain, ni, northern winter, november, orash, orange, pale november, peppered, puss, spanish moon, swallow-tailed, sweet gale, turnip, wax, white satin, or winter moths. And I would like a top lepidopterist with some knowledge of the fall of the Romanovs to tell me. Listeners should note that the bag of deceitful weights is not mentioned in Haggai, but can be found in Micah, chapter 6, verse 11. It would not surprise me to learn that Rasputin had such a bag too, given that he was a deceitful monk as well as the mad monk of legend. His bag of deceitful weights and bag with holes may have been one and the same, of course, a possibility which makes the brain real. This is the kind of historical conundrum that Dobson ought to have written a pamphlet about, but never did. If he had, we might be a little further away from bag quandary and a little closer to bag truth. Bag truth sounds like a Yoko Ono escapade, so the still small voice of common sense whispers in my ear, be silent now, be silent. Bye bye.